0: Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. everybody. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have another great friend of mine with us today, David Gitau. He is a long-tenured veteran of the publishing industry. He spent many years in a a senior role at Time Inc. Um, He's been with Hearst. Most recently, he was uh, responsible for the direct-to-consumer business with Highlights Magazine, a a a memory from my youth a long i don't know how long highlights magazine's been around but it's a long long time uh, playing a key role in education of young young people he's also did a stint as a chief marketing officer chief digital marketing officer for ashford.com in fact if i just tried to describe all of his experience i'd probably run out the clock on our on our podcast today so i'll i'll stop there but i'm really excited to get into it with david because he is not only a long time veteran of the publishing industry but of the digital transformation of publishing industry. So, David, welcome, and anything you want to add to my uh, attempt to introduce you with all of your tremendous
1: experience? Uh, No, Howard, I think you did a great job. Everyone just reading it that I've been around a long time and I'm old.
0: (laughs) No, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't say that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm getting on myself. Well, you know what? The upside of us old guys is we have seen and done a lot. So um, that's why we're here to try to have some conversations about what we've learned over time. So, gosh, so many different angles we could get into. But, but clearly, uh, the story of publishing over in recent decades has been the story of the move to digital. And although, having said that, there's obviously still a business, I you know, published a book myself, and we've sold thousands and thousands of copies in print. And so, um, and personally, if I have to choose, I'd rather someone buy the print version because I know it's gonna sit on their desk or sit in their bookshelf instead of get lost in a list of hundreds of items on their Kindle. So I'm a fan of print. And, uh, and at the same time, clearly we've seen the decline in favor of lower cost and more convenient distribution channels. So maybe just start there. I'd love you just, what do you, what, how do you view this publishing has had to evolve and adapt and kind of, I don't know, there have been successes and there have been huge failures. What's your perspective, kind of looking back at, at how publishing has handled the digital revolution?
1: Yeah, I think, Howard, it's been mind boggling for a lot of us who go way back to Time Inc, where we started and a lot of us grew up with Time, Sports Illustrated, People, Life, Entertainment Weekly a long time ago. And back then, um, print was dominant. We had 4,600,000 people got Time Magazine, 12 million people got Reader's Digest. It was just enormous numbers. And I remember late 80s, and this was kind of the, the beginning, late 80s, um, this new thing came about, which was starting to challenge our current business. It was called um, cable TV, if you remember, late 80s. And all of a sudden, people were getting news, not every week when we wanted to give it to them, but they were starting to get news every day. So we had to begin to rethink the content to say, well, if everyone is burnt out on the latest news story, uh, Will Smith, for example. You know, if you saw that on Saturday and our issue wasn't coming out till Friday and you'd already um, seen as much as you could handle, what, what was news in that shape? And sports and all these different arenas, ESPN came up. So that was really the beginning of shifts of content. And the other big thing was those articles were enormously long. So what happened was that Soundbites, that became a word, soundbites. And so, content, not only did you have more competitors, but the type of content started to get shorter and quicker. And then, with the advent of the internet, you know, whenever we were, let's say around uh, 2000, late 90s, that got even more rapid. So, content's gotten shorter. If you notice, your articles are much, much shorter, they're more bite sized. And the whole world has changed and news it news information on anything you want is everywhere. So the question is, what do you do if you're a magazine? And a lot of magazines weren't up to the challenge. And a lot of there's been enormous change in the industry. Time Inc., which was the dominant publisher, is gone for the most part. They're now a byline in Meredith or a dot dash. So they're completely different. Sports Illustrated is completely, totally different. Um, And a lot of publications just no longer do print editions. So it's been a fascinating transformation, sad for a lot of us that were back there in the heyday. But, um, and you know, when we look back, we say, why? Why did this happen? And there are two key factors. One is advertising. And the beauty of magazines and a lot of print content newspapers, et cetera, was that they were 70% ad revenue, and ad revenue is at 80% margins, 75%, 80% margins. All of a sudden, when now new advertising mediums came up that were new shiny pennies for a lot of advertisers, um, or they re- reached a different market more t- on a more targeted basis, all of a sudden that advertising dollar shifted, really hurting magazines, and at the same time, you had the delivery of content in new and different ways. So that really changed the game. And magazines, um, wh- all they did really, and this is sad, is they would just take the print edition, put up a PDF onto a website and or send that to customers, and that consisted being in the internet game. And I really do think that stalled for a long time magazine's ability to recognize, wait a second, what is the content we deliver? What is the content in this new world people want? How should we deliver it? And making changes in the way they distributed the content and what the content was. So Mm -hmm. I think that was a major change and a very poor recognition on the magazine world and publishing world's part. To really recognize this is a new medium. What do we do in the new medium? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I want to dive into that more. But before I do, I want to I'm curious if you have a a prognosis for print. I know uh, I saw a study recently that showed that the after obviously massive declines, that over the last few years, the number of consumer print magazines has been ticking up just a teeny tiny bit over the last few years. And it almost looks like I don't know, I'm curious of what you your view on this but you know it has print maybe flatlined but is there a long term future for print as a way of getting news and lifestyle content and things like that out or are we just on a on a momentary plateau on the way down 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 and ultimately print as a means for delivering that kind of content is going the way you know of the eight track tape the telex uh etc uh
1: personally I think as sad as it is it's on it's got about 20 years left 20 25 years I think if you if you actually I used to do this in the office when I was at Hearst and I was in charge of digital marketing of Hearst newspapers and we'd go around to all these people who were working on print editions and I would say to pretty much anyone under 35 who gets the print edition nobody read it so I think it's going to be Folks who grew up and are very comfortable in a digital world and just focus themselves that way, once they are 60, 65, that's when I think print is going to go. So I think there's a lot of us that love print, grew up on print, are facile with it. I think over time, once those people you know, are not the key part of the market anymore or not able to sustain it, they're going to all start to transfer over to digital. Um, yeah, and I've I heard it said.
0: Believe- that- I'm sorry, go ahead, finish that.
1: Sorry, I just, I just, you know, it started with cable TV, and now it's digital. I just don't see um, the ability to sustain print and physically print and go through those costs. Um, it's tough. Also, you know, the other thing which is very interesting when you look at the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, if you read about them, they're flourishing right now. They, they're they doing spectacularly well and what they did was, A, they recognized very early that they could create content and that it would be in demand and not go away. So they were able to maintain and bolster their newsmaking organizations. But the thing that happened, and I don't think enough publishers have realized it, is that they, for them, print was... Um, sorry, print, I'm going to, sorry, for them, if you can edit this out. So for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, what happened for them was a lot of the restrictions that being a print format had to get a subscription to someone in Idaho, to get a subscription to someone in Malaysia. There was no way. It was too expensive and no one was going to subscribe. All of a sudden through digital, now the opportunity, it created a worldwide opportunity and they've taken advantage of it and have, it bolstered their newsmaking organizations globally. And their digital subscriptions are far, far, far bigger than it ever was as print. So for them, it's been a great thing having digital, but I don't think a lot of other um, publishers have re- said, okay, what does this new medium allow us to do? Time Magazine. What does it allow us to do? All of a sudden, instead of having six global editions, you could have had—and if you'd done it earlier and installed it—a very powerful global weekly news commentary that was thoughtful. They could have probably done things a lot faster. Sports as well. They could. Sports Illustrated could have become a global sports entity, a global sports brand, and brought news and information that way. Yeah.
0: Oh, that makes tons of sense. I mean, I remember being in my twenties when I still had a print subscription to the New York Times, and that Sunday Times would come. And I mean, that thing weighed six pounds. You know, <laughs> that right? Was a, right. That's a ship. That to think about shipping something like that to uh, to London or whatever else would see. Oh. I can totally see how would be would be extraordinarily expensive, let alone the Times. So, um, no, that I think that that makes good sense. And and uh, just to uh, go back for a sec to what you were saying about the older generations. I mean, I am with you. I I did a whole. Uh, livecast uh, last year about ebooks and asserting the view, which I don't think is a commonly held view today, which is that uh, printed books has, have essentially 20 years left as a, as a mainstream, uh, very much what you said, the 20-year number. You know. And I, I gave a whole bunch of reasons why I thought, a very detailed analysis. Uh, we'll see if I'm right, but I put myself out there and said, Printed books are on the way out, except as you know. I'm sure there's always there's always an edge case, right? There's always somebody right. who still uses a. Uh, I mean, my son plays uh, you know LP albums sometimes out of uh, nostalgia and whatnot. Right. So there's always the edge case, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you know that kind of mainstream. Is is it a is it a dominant uh, media me- method of distributing something? And I think it's safe to say that LP records vinyl is not a mainstream method of delivering no, music, it, even it's, it's, if it's it, it, still
1: accessible. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun niche thing, right? Exactly, exactly.
0: And um, uh, you know what you said about the the age. I think that's right. I think one of the points that I made uh, back then was it it does seem like you know those that are most interested in these print mediums, and it makes sense, are those that grew up with them, that are that tend to be older. So you have this older crowd until they reach the age where they want the print to get bigger, (laughs) and then all of a sudden, (laughs) even to them the digital starts to look pretty darn good because we don't have, I don't think, the Reader's Digest large type edition anymore. And this fundamental ability, and this is one of the dozen or so reasons, as simple as it is, but the ability to change the type size in in digital publications becomes very, very important for people who start to experience, obviously at any age, you might have this issue, but certainly with older people, reduced vision and the desire not to have to always wear your reading glasses becomes a reason to go to digital as I well. I do.
1: You know, and, and Howard, I think there's one other thing which... Uh, the new generation does differently than the older generation does, which I think is interesting. I've kind of, I kind of coined them. I don't like Gen Z or Gen X or what. I, I don't know the difference between them, and it's, it's a lot of uh, alphabetical confusion. But right. I call them the on-demand generation. So, folks, when I look at my daughter, when I look at folks in their twenty, they have grown up getting what they want when they want to get it. They are less programmed. They don't think of TV. We sit there and look at what's on tonight. What is the, what is the broadcast station giving us tonight? What's HBO giving us tonight? They don't think that way. They, want, they think on demand. And right. so that's very much if you have a kid in their teens, they sit up in their room and they watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it. They shop for what they want, when they want it. It's delivered right to wherever they want. And so with print and newspapers, same thing. They will go and seek the news. They'll look at what's on their homepage perhaps or coming through their Facebook feed or their Apple feed or whatever feed they are. But they, it's, they get news on demand. They're less oriented to read what, what the um, New York Times or Wall Street Journal are providing. They'll go and seek out the news story of the day. You know yeah. What, what I, happened I, I, with Will Smith?
0: I experienced this in my own home. I, the other just just yesterday, my son was at the computer. My nine year old son Joseph playing Roblox, and all of a sudden, I hear from the next room, "Dad, waffles!" You know, <laughs> what? What? Yep, need some waffles. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's so, that on demand uh, on demand generation, right? <laughs> right. And how does you know? So the question is, how does that how does that translate into content, print, um, all that? It means you're going to have to make it it searchable and accessible. You're going to need to get into other people's feeds. That's going to yeah. be critical. You're going to need to be, have content out there. You hear top of the funnel. That th- that's how content's going to be delivered. Top of the funnel, and then they draw you down.
0: Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. That's interesting. You mentioned things like Apple News, and um, you know we saw, of course, when iTunes came out the sort of the disaggregation of the album into the song, right? right. And and now with with TiVo and other kind of on demand methods of of watching shows. I think we've seen to some degree the disaggregation of the channel there's a lot of people who say "Oh, i have to go home and watch bridgerton uh you know well what's bridgerton on i don't know you know it's on my apple tv right or or it's on my kindle fire stick or whatever else but they it's been it's been made so easy to just find the show that it becomes less important to know uh you know which service it's on and i'm wondering are you seeing the same thing with essentially magazine articles and if so, because more and more people instead of going to news providers are going to Google News or going to Apple News or some sort of aggregator with personalization or, or just Twitter, Facebook, places like that, which essentially also serve as personalized news platforms for better or for worse. What have you observed in terms of that change? And what does it mean for someone like a Time or even a highlights, you know, a, a magazine that has that kind of classic content?
1: Yeah, well, I think Google is still the predominant method of searching for news. And so one of the big questions for anyone who's in the content distribution business is how good am I at getting recognized by Google? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's your first wall of defense for searching, for on demand, but then you have to be good at, and you have to be organized to make sure that your content is being fed through the major distributors, Apple, Facebook Facebook is enormously powerful. Um, they're going through trouble right now. i um, a little worried about Facebook because of all the privacy rules. But Apple, I think, has done a good job, but isn't the first place people go, I don't think, because I don't think you're looking – there's nothing you look at at Apple on a daily basis like you do a Facebook. Facebook, you are there all day long. If you're a Facebook person, you're there all day long, and you look at your feed. Apple – I'm not sure they have that same sort of natural affinity to the customer. You have to kind of go, or you put on your newsfeed, but it's not a go-to daily activity. I think it's a little bit more of an effort. Um, and so question is, will there be more of that over time um, emerging? I don't, there aren't that many more news organizations that have an, a go-to sort of um uh, where you're gonna to go to that news organization very rapidly unless you want to subscribe. Um, local is different though, because I think there is a lot with local newspapers. I, I worked for Hearst for a few years in their um, newspaper division. And the each one of the newspapers, uh, San Francisco Chronicle, Houston Chronicle, had very, very strong, well-received um, digital newspapers. Or they had websites, sorry, websites, and so with very good traffic. And I think that's a place that people go on a local level more frequently because that news you know has to be curated for you. So there's a curation of news that I think works well on a local level um, and, and can be supported by advertising on a local level. So I think there's a lot of local news or local content, which will do well over the long run. And I think the Internet's an excellent medium for that because you can go through very easily, whereas most local newspapers are pretty bad. Um, You know, if you once you get out of the New York metropolitan area and you look at some newspapers from out of town, uh, out of the New York area, they're not the greatest newspapers. They take the generally take. Um, Associated Press or generally uh, May News, cobble it together into a newspaper. But there's not as much in-depth reporting anymore. But when you have digital and you can get big numbers, uh, I think you'll see a lot of flourishing of local, local news, local information, whereas it's harder on a national level to be able to support a huge organization.
0: Well, and I wonder, you know, in the old days, people would get their national and international news from their local hometown paper, whether it's the Chicago Tribune or the Houston Chronicle or whatnot, but with the rise, as you've described already, of what really were initially fairly more local papers, even like the New York Times, becoming an international news organization, all of a sudden, does it become this bifurcated thing where we're not really looking to our local paper for national and international news you know, even if we're living somewhere totally different, we're still getting that from the New York Times or somebody like that, or from a non-traditional print provider like a Fox News or whatever, uh, and, then, and then really it's left to the local papers just to focus on that kind of hyper-local content that someone like a New York Times wouldn't be interested in.
1: Exactly. I think that, I think the, the local will morph easily into digital, and they'll also be able to get an advertising base, which is key. The question is, can you get the advertising base and have that support the business? And I think local, there's always radio, you know, still exists on a local level. That's because there is a base of advertising. I did, believe it or not, work for a radio station for a while, Cumulus, which is number two in the market. And there is a very strong base of local businesses that need to reach the local community. And that has helped those radio stations stay, and not a lot of those have disappeared. They've been bought up, and and there's been a lot of consolidation, but they still do pretty well, and that's because those businesses haven't changed. You still need you know your local business to reach a local customer, so that that's been very interesting. It's more the national um, publications that have really had trouble, like an Entertainment Weekly sort of thing. Um, yeah. So, although you know, it, it, I, I sorry, go ahead, finish. No, no, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, I, you know, although you know, used to be, you know, if you wanted to, you know, if you placed an ad in a, a Time magazine, you know, you were reaching a national audience. And if you didn't need a national audience, for example, you're just a local store in in St. Louis, then that makes no sense because it's very expensive. So you want to be in a, on a local print publication. And even though, even many years ago. Some of the large print publications did have some element of, of regional advertising. You can place right. an ad in some magazines and have it only appear on the West Coast or the East Coast to solve that yep. problem. Still, it was pretty coarse. But but of course, now with programmatic and with personalized advertising, is there in fact this this break where there's nothing that stops, you know, Joe's car wash in, in Saskatchewan from advertising in the New York Times because digitally, it can still be targeted to only be seen by people who live you know, within 10 miles of Saskatchewan, and all of a sudden, he's in the New York Times, and so it becomes less important that local businesses are actually supporting local content.
1: Exactly. And that's a critical, critical thing. I think one of the things that's changed in the media world is paywalls. Um, in the beginning so I've been in this since the very beginning in the beginning there was a huge debate do you have websites that have free content and you give it away free and it's an ad supported model and that's the way the news would be would work but then over time I think everybody realized they, it was hard to get enough money from advertisers digitally to make the business really work so you had to go back to the consumer and say okay what if I give you more access or if I continue to give you access or give you more access? So it either could be to um, better and more detailed content or it could just be like if you have ever looked at the Washington Post, you get your six articles a month, you get used to it and then you want more and you can't get it for the month. So you then think, well, okay, I'll, I'll subscribe and go beyond the paywall. So a lot of publishers have now discovered that a paywall can work. I can get the consumer to pay. But the big question for a lot of them, and I know having talked to them is what is that content that I have to give to make a paywall work, to get someone to pay me for full-time access, a consumer. So it's a subscription for sure. It's the same thing. It's just a different sort of content or access to something better. And that, um and going back to the Hearst example it was something we talked about all the time we had we had print editions that were good we had print we we had websites that had better content but then we had the San Francisco gate which was free content so ad supported so we're going back and forth all the time do we should we have a paywall should we not should there be two separate things and that was only 5 6 years ago so even though Internet is, you know, 20, 25 years old, if you want to get to when it really is. The question is, it's still early. It's still early days. So a lot has formed. And I do think paywall, but the content has got to be valid and, and good. Um, and so I think people will begin to say, what should we be? And a good example is if I want to grow an international audience, if I, my product is something that could be go worldwide. Like Let's say you were in um, fishing or boating. You, there's no reason that you couldn't have a worldwide audience. The question is, is the content relevant to the worldwide audience? So can I open up demand on an international level and really take advantage? And that's what the Times and Journal have done really well. I still think for some publications, that's a big opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. and, but they may have to vary the content, which you can do on the internet.
0: So your view is uh, because I, you know, it looking at something like the Times and, and the Journal, one could conclude. Well, this is the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, so they can get away with the paywall, but can you know boating news <laughs> get away? But I, what I hear you saying is you believe that really is a viable business model if you're able to say, okay, we're a niche publication. We obviously don't have the level of interest of a New York Times, but on the other hand, if we aggregate together a global audience, we actually have a pretty big audience. And if we have quality content that really transcends what you can get for free, that there should be a paywall opportunity or that this should be a common model, not just something that's only good for giant international brands.
1: Right. And I the interesting thing about the internet too, without getting into too much of the business aspect, the marginal cost curve is extremely low mm. on delivering that next subscription. So whether I have 10,000 subscriptions or I have 50,000, there's a cost of acquisition but then once you deliver it really doesn't cost you any more money so you have a very very attractive model for subscriptions when it comes to um, the, the question is the content is the content, is there an imperative to it, an urgency or is there enough of it where I think if I'm an aficionado or I have a deep interest, yes I should do this
0: well, you know, that, that, that makes me want to ask, we're, we're recording this just a few days after sort of an earthquake went through the news industry, which is, of course, uh, CNN announced CNN Plus, a major strategic initiative, a paywall-driven uh, news content option that I think cost, if I remember, something like three, 3 bucks a month. It was envisioned to be, as you described, really international in scope and and they very aggressively promoted it, and all of a sudden, I started to see cnn.com started to feel like a commercial for CNN Plus. It seemed like half of the stuff that was being pushed to me when I went to cnn.com was going to send me to a to a registration uh, right. to sign up for CNN Plus. And uh, then the um, acquisition of CNN by Discovery Communications went through, and only a couple weeks after the launch of CNN Plus, at I can't even imagine what cost they must have borne to launch that product must have been many tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars um it's now been killed and eliminated and and i think it's already gone it was destroyed it was uh, you know right it's halted almost within 24 hours of that um any any thoughts or insights about that massive change of direction because clearly you had people with a very different thinking around the paywall potential for an international news brand like cnn
1: yeah and that didn't well i think this is a particular business case um I, CNN plus I always worried about from the get-go just because there is so much news. There's almost mm. too much news. And so, yes, you trust CNN. For them, from a business point of view, they're already creating the content for the TV network. They've already got international channels. So for them, it was chain taking all that content and modifying it for an internet channel. So for them, they had certain business advantages to it. But in terms of why do I need, I mean, I'm as news interested as anybody and I never even gave it a remote thought, you know, in terms of why, why would I, need, do you have enough demand? And I think that in their early days, that's what they were seeing is there was not enough demand for it. As part of a package, I think, I think discovery has enormous opportunity to package and how the product eventually morphs, I don't know. But they have so much. They've got anchors of HBO and HBO Max for entertainment, at the, uh, TBS. They've got tons of entertainment. Then they've got very specific interest, enormous amounts of specific interest. So I think they can become a formidable player over the long run. And one of the anchor points will be news too. So you get news all the time with CNN+. Plus. You get entertainment when you want it. You get – great channels, discovery channels and, you know, you can see swamp people and all all that sort of stuff right in your home. So I think that that will create a behemoth. That's my opinion and my guess is it will create a behemoth um, in the how it all fits together. It's a little hard of a story to promote but uh, from a marketer's vantage point, but I think they'll figure it out and I think they will have a very formidable and so there'll be, you know, the three, four or five anchors that will be the streaming anchors, you know Disney, mm-hmm. for sure, um, you know, and uh, and Netflix, Netflix and then course, there'll yeah. be four or five others, and there'll be more consolidation, and eventually there'll be cable channels, just like there are now. It'll just come over your internet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm astonished to look at the clock and realize that we have used up our allocated time already. We've only just scratched the surface of some of these topics, but this has been great. Let me ask you, kind of one final closeout question. What are you excited about? If you are going to start something new right now, or kind of guide someone to say, in terms of the world of media, this is what's new, this is what's cool, this is what's exciting, this is where the potential is. What is the the plastics of our uh, of, of the next <laughs> uh, the next era that we should all be looking at?
1: Um, I'm very excited about the evolution of streaming. That's. I think you know, trying to anticipate game theory it out and say, where do I end up? Uh, I think that's one. Um, is where does streaming end up? And what if you game theory it out, what's the eventual end of it, and what will emerge out of it? Um, and then this the second thing which I, I still look at, and I'm amazed twenty years, twenty five years after go, leaving timing to go to a startup to, in the startup.com days, I thought we'd be farther along, but I think there's so many small and medium sized businesses that still are trying to figure out how they um, work in a digital age. How do they make Facebook work for them? Um, it's a little off the topic we were initially on, but i that's where what I love is how do you take these businesses, like I work for Highlights, small, medium sized business, good revenue, incredible brand, but weren't really addressing the, the um, market, is and we really beefed up digital for them. So I think for companies, and I'm seeing it now, I'm consulting, I am going into companies, and that's what I'm looking at is I still think there's a huge opportunity for small, medium-sized businesses to really look at what they do and figure out how do I use the Internet. Um, it's only 20 years old, so there's new generations but I think that, that's also what excites me, is companies getting much better at using it and adapting their products, but also their selling and their marketing, so.
0: Yeah, amen, couldn't agree more. Well, David, you mentioned you're doing consulting now. Um, obviously, you bring to that tremendous knowledge and expertise as you've just been demonstrating with us over the last 30 minutes or so. If someone wants to reach out to you or, or learn more about you, where would you send them? What should they, where should they go, what should they do?
1: Um, they could look at me at, on LinkedIn. Or my email is dgitow, G-I-T-O-W, at gmail.com. Okay.
0: Well, very nice. Well, we'll put those and the link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for anyone who's looking for it. And uh, David, thank you so much. This has been an illuminating conversation. Really appreciate your being here.
1: Thanks, Howard. It's been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Great. And and, uh, thanks to
0: all of you as well, as always, of course, for listening to or watching the Winning Digital Customers podcast. So happy to have you. Look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, keep transforming.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen, and visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.